You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part 13 of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss, moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We'll end our reading there at verse 34, the end of chapter 6 of Matthew. Now we're continuing, of course, in the same vein of thought, this Sermon on the Mount, so-called from Matthew 5 to 7, the same vein of thought that Jesus has been developing about the nature of God's kingdom. And then in the first half of Matthew 6, about how our acts of righteousness, of giving, of prayer and of fasting should be done in relationship with our Heavenly Father and not hypocritically to impress other people. Within that, of course, Jesus is calling us to prioritise the spiritual over the physical, to prioritise God over people, heaven over earth. And that's the idea that continues in the verses that we've just read. Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but in heaven where those things don't happen. Why? Because verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's true that what we value leads our priorities in life. The core values of our heart are what directs us. The um, things that we believe to be important, people might talk about a worldview, 
which is a set of values and understandings of how the world works, of what matters, that shapes our attitudes and our decisions. Or people might say that really the core issue is what we worship, desire, emotion, leads us so much more than reason. Uh, so although we might talk about a worldview, the fact is that many people have not thought through what they actually think of or, or believe about life. They don't have a clear philosophy, if you like. But we follow those things that we desire. Our desires come from what we think is important, valuable, precious. If we think that this life is all there is, and if our hearts desire possessions, treasure, as this world would value it, of course that may well be physical things, a bigger house, a better car, more money in the bank account, a better holiday, flashier clothes, designer glasses instead of uh, just the, the, the cheap ones. If these things seem to have value to us, then we will seek to lay up treasure in these areas. But there is no security in that. Moth and rust destroy. Things in this world will decay. They will wear out. They will come to an end of their usefulness. Thieves break in and steal. The problem here is that we look for security in things in this life, in this world. But true security is not to be found there. There is an alternative way to live, which is to build up treasure in heaven. The reward that Jesus has spoken about earlier in the chapter that our Heavenly Father gives. Storing up treasure in heaven is what matters because these things cannot decay, cannot be taken from us. They are kept for us by God. So Jesus is calling us to a, a, a completely different attitude, an attitude that prioritises God's kingdom, an attitude that puts God first, that has confidence that God is in control, that what matters is the eternal reward that he will give. What matters is what we are building into his kingdom what we are storing up eternally. It would be better to be poor in this life and to enter heaven with riches than to be rich in this life and to lose out eternally. Ultimately, of course, to lose your own soul, as Jesus warns. But for those who are citizens of his kingdom, who are his followers, who are believers in Jesus, children of God, why would we put so much weight on the things that this world can offer? Could be physical things, as I said, material things. It might be fame, reputation, respect, friendships, fun, pleasure. All things which have their place, but when they become the goal of our life, the idols of our life, that's destructive. And to illustrate this, Jesus uses the idea of the eye in verses 22 and 23. It's quite a confusing picture for us, but there is an Old Testament background to this. There are three verses in the Old Testament that talk about an evil eye in the literal Hebrew. Deuteronomy 15 verse 9 says, Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly, or you have an evil eye on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. 
that verse is talking about the jubilee year, the year when debts were supposed to be cancelled and people were to be given a fresh chance. And, and, and God is saying, be careful that you don't have an evil eye towards your poor brother. In other words, you think, I can't give uh, release my brother and, uh, and undo his debt and give him another chance because these things are mine and that's where my security is. That's living for this world rather than for God. Again, two verses in Proverbs talk about the evil eye. Verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. Literally, that phrase, a man who is stingy, is a man whose eye is evil. And again, in Proverbs 28, verse 22, a stingy man, a man whose eye is evil, hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. So a person whose eye is evil, as a Hebrew idiom, as a, an Old Testament phrase, is someone who, who looks at the things of this world, who sees only what is visible and tangible on earth, who desires money, who is greedy to hold on to it, and in doing so is um, uh, stingy towards other people, reluctant to give or to forgive or to cancel debts. Which, of course, might remind us of the Lord's Prayer that we looked at in the last episode. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, debt, who are in debt to us. I was very quick in that episode, and we are often in other translations to call it trespasses or sins. But quite literally, it also has to do with, with debt and whether we are willing to cancel a person's debt, to be merciful, to be generous hearted. It has to do with how we use our material goods. And I think sometimes we overlook that, at least as Western Christians, because uh, we have privatised the whole area of money uh, and of, of possessions, so much so that one of the great sins of the church in the, well, in the West is wealth and indulgence of wealth. And too many people uh, keep too much money for themselves. And we don't teach enough about it. Jesus makes it a major theme of his teaching. To say that uh, God has to be Lord of our possessions. So when Jesus talks in Matthew 6 about the good eye and the evil eye, the healthy eye and the bad eye or evil eye. Then that's what he's, this is what he's referring to. And that explains why it's here in a context of talking about treasure. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye lets light in. It is through the eyes that we see everything, that we gain a, a proper understanding of the world around us. And an evil eye, a bad eye, verse 23, literally an evil eye, it brings darkness into our, 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 our hearts. Uh, and the evil eye is an eye that only sees the things of this world, that is caught up with possessions. It, in many ways, it, it might seem obvious to us. Well, of course, that's all that you can see. You can't see God. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see the unseen spiritual world realm. But the person with an evil eye is somebody who can only see what is under the sun, if you like. You can only see what is physical. 
the modern naturalist or materialist who only believes in what is physical and can be touched and who therefore lives only for the things of this world. But a good eye, a healthy eye, sees spiritual reality too, understands that God is sovereign over this world, that he is the giver of all that we have, and that he calls us to be generous with our possessions. He calls us to prioritise his kingdom. If your eye is bad, your whole eye is full of, or your whole body is full of darkness. And the light that is in you is darkness. The tragedy here of the person who thinks that they are enlightened. Of course, that word enlightenment has been used in, in the West to talk about the period of time from the mid-1600s onwards into the 1700s and, and up to about 1800 when uh, people were putting emphasis on human reason and scientific method. But the Enlightenment was not truly enlightening because it led people to see with greater clarity the things of this world, and that's been wonderful, the gift of science and and, and commerce and all of those things. Huge progress in how we use and, and understand the physical, material world. But actually it led to darkness in spiritual matters. People neglecting God. Atheism becoming respectable and acceptable. Deism, the idea of God creating but leaving the world to run according to laws that he set in place but without being personally involved himself. And what we call the Enlightenment was a, an enlightenment of, of the physical world, but a darkening of the soul. It's fake light, light in us that is actually darkness. Because whilst science may help us to see how the world works, it cannot tell us what the world is for. Whilst reason might help us to uh, develop all sorts of technologies, it can't guide us in a good way to use them. And whilst these things may benefit a richer and a healthier and a longer life in this body, they will not prepare us for judgment that comes afterwards and for eternal life. So again, these things are good. I'm not saying, by the way, science and technology and the advances that have come from the Enlightenment are bad. I'm simply saying that if they do not acknowledge God as King and Sovereign and Heavenly Father, then they are not ultimately good and they are not um, true light. They become darkness and the darkness is great indeed. No one, Jesus says, verse 24, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money, or God and mammon, the, uh, the, the word that's used there. It's an Aramaic word, a Semitic word that um, may have been a personification of possessions, a God that was worshipped but certainly means uh, money or possessions. Jesus is saying you've got to decide. You can't have two of two masters. Possessions will become your master. They will take over your life. Fame, fortune in this life will become your driver if you do not be careful to surrender it to God. God has got to be your master, your priority, your Lord. Put his kingdom first. And of course, the wonderful truth about this is that this is the pathway to freedom from anxiety. 
Jesus says, therefore, you don't need to be anxious about your life, what you will eat, drink or put clothe your body with. We might add shelter. Maybe uh, Jesus didn't need to because in the climate he lived in, people could survive outdoors. We would need a roof over our heads as well. But the point Jesus is making is life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Look at nature. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. What do they teach us? Well, the birds don't sow or reap. I'm looking at birds out of my window right now, pecking at nuts that I have hanging out for them, starling. And there were other birds around. I need to replenish some of the other seeds for them. Now, those birds did not have to sow those seeds or grow them. I just put them out for them. But even if I hadn't done that, they can forage, they can find food just in the fields, just where it grows. This world is abundant in its provision of food for life. Of course, our technological advances can make better use of that and be more productive and bring greater food security to people. But it's God who provides these things. It's God who created a world that is fruitful, a world that can produce food for us. And if God provides, it says your heavenly father feeds them, those birds, if God provides for them, will he not provide for you? Are you not of greater value? I, I do find it a very therapeutic thing to just sit and watch the birds. I'm, I'm being a bit hypocritical because I don't often do it. I don't often just sit still and look at nature. I'm trying to learn to, but at least if I'm out walking and I like to go out for walks, I can see nature and I, and I find great pleasure in that. And looking at the way the world works, the birds are just one example, but the way the world works, the, the, the changing of the climate and of the, the clouds, the passing of the clouds, rain and sun, the turning of the earth and its rotation around the sun, hurtling through space, and yet to us it seems like it's still. Quite amazing. The seasons continue, life continues, the world provides. And this is not to, uh, to ignore the fact, of course, that there are people in the world who starve or that even Christians may suffer loss for the cause of Christ. We saw that in chapter five. And Jesus said that it's part of kingdom living to face persecution for his name. But your heavenly father cares for you. He will provide what you need. He knows that you need these things. Jesus says. He, it's not pretending that you don't need them for life in this world. You have certain basic needs, but your father will provide. And of course, since you're not just primarily about storing up treasure on earth, then actually what your father will definitely do is hold you until he brings you to himself through death. This is about trusting. It's about recognising that what matters in this world is not my labour and toil in order to make food and to survive, but the provision of my father. And being anxious doesn't add a single R to your life. Verse 27, in fact, we know that anxiety shortens life. In, um, in the... Uh, uh, an alternative reading in the footnotes is a single cubit to his stature. So you could say that anxiety doesn't doesn't give you a longer life. It doesn't make you a bigger man, a bigger person. Anxiety destroys. It undermines. 
it distracts. When we become anxious about these things, we, we start to give our energy to the wrong things. We give our energy to trying to, to store up security for ourselves in the things that we have or the relationships that we have or significance in ourselves by being loved or liked by other people. Anxiety is a driver to all sorts of unhealthy behaviours. But trust in our Heavenly Father is a pathway to security and purpose. And why be anxious about clothing, Jesus says, verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field. They grow and they don't toil or spin. And Solomon was not as beautiful as they are in all of his glory. Again, stop and look at the beauty of nature. And realise how good your Heavenly Father is, how wise, how much he appreciates beauty. And if God clothes the grass of the field this way by uh, scattering flowers throughout it, which is alive today and dead tomorrow, will he not clothe you, you of little faith? Again, Jesus is calling us to faith, to trust in our Father. To say, Lord, I don't need to live for the goal of these things. I need to be wise with what you've given me. I need to use it for your kingdom and your purpose. I need to be generous to others. And I need to trust that you will provide for me. You will supply the basic things that I need. My daily bread. Again, the Lord's Prayer captures so much of this. Forgive or Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Living day by day with trust in our Father. So don't be anxious saying what will we eat, drink or wear. The Gentiles seek these things and your Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. There is a promise there that God will provide our basic needs. And I think Christians can depend on that promise. God doesn't promise that he will provide everything that you want. He certainly doesn't promise that he will give you luxury. This is not a prosperity gospel. It would be utterly wrong to distort it in that way, to say, have great faith and God will, will give more and more to you and, and you'll be rich in this world. You will be rich in heaven. God will give you what you seek. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled back to the Beatitudes. If you ask God for holiness, if you ask God to know him more, to become more like Jesus, he will provide that. And as you do it, he will supply your basic needs. How will he do it? Well, normally through your own work. But if you're not able to, he will supply through others in the church family, of course. And of course, if opposition from those who are hostile to the gospel means death or starvation, then he will bring you to his home where you will have abundant treasure in heaven. Now, of course, talking about that, the reality is that I and most of you listeners in the Western world will never face uh, that bread line where you truly are in danger of starving. We have a welfare state, but most of us have an abundance of, of possessions. And how much more do we need to stop and look at the birds and the flowers and how much might we be part of how God provides for the needs of other Christians both locally as we care for them in church and globally as we give to those who can supply their needs 
There's a big challenge to that, isn't there? That we are part of the answer to this need for others. But even if you're not worried about where your next meal will come from, you might be worried about your health. You might be worried about family members. You might be worried about the pressures of your job or whether you'll get a job. And I understand that and the Lord knows these things and you can bring them to him in prayer in the pattern of the Lord's prayer. Lord, don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Lord, provide what I need in the way that you will. I'm willing to work and do what I can. But as you do that, allow the Lord to guard your heart with his peace. Don't be anxious about anything, Philippians 4 says, but in everything with prayers and petitions, present your requests to God. And when you have done that, leave it there and trust in him to provide and do what you know he wants you to do. Keep on doing the right thing. Don't think, oh, I can't afford to give anything to anyone because I'm not sure about my own financial security. Be generous. Cancel debts. Give. And don't seek to have more of this world's possessions. Rather, seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Seek to be obedient to his will. Seek to surrender to him. Seek to serve his kingdom, to share about him, to spread the gospel, to serve people in his name, to build up treasure in heaven, to build something into his eternal kingdom. And as you do that, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Verse 34, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan ahead. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any savings or any money in your account. That's That would be wrong. That would be a misapplication. We have to be wise. We have to plan where it's appropriate. But we do so full of faith, trusting that God will provide, using those things, making those plans for the sake of his kingdom, rather than just for our own wealth and possession and security. And in doing so, we can be free of anxiety. That's not to say that some of us won't need other help with anxiety issues, by the way, with mental health uh, issues. Sometimes that means medication or counselling or uh, finding supportive encouragers around us. I encourage you to do all of those things if you need to. Those are not counter to what Jesus says here. But in doing those things, don't think that the medicine or the counselling alone will be enough. There's a process to go through in my thinking, isn't there? To slow down. Part of that actually will be slowing down, going for walks, practicing Sabbath, looking at nature, looking at the birds, reflecting on the kingdom of God. And it certainly will be prayerfulness of saying, Lord, I'm anxious. Help me to trust in you, to seek your kingdom first. Give me a good eye, not an evil eye, not an eye that looks with jealousy and greed and stinginess and things around me, but an eye that is generous, an eye that is focused on your kingdom, that sees the value, the true value of things, that the things of this world can be can be converted into heavenly treasure if they are spent for your glory and for your purpose. So I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. And I need your grace for today, your provision, my daily bread. And I don't expect to have grace for tomorrow. 
In my experience, and I've read this elsewhere, I think C.S. Lewis wrote something about this. I've quoted him, I think, in the last episode, so I'll quote him again, or at least reference him. It won't be a quote. But that when we become anxious, we're expecting God to provide today the grace that we will need tomorrow. I don't know about you, but when I get anxious, it's because I'm all of the things that are going on in my life crowd in at once and it feels like they're all going to happen at once. And how can I survive them? How can I be be courageous in the face of that? How can I get through that challenge? How can I have that difficult conversation? How can I preach that message? How can I prepare for so many different things? How will we get funding for the organisation I work with? Uh, how can I uh, face my death with courage? The fact is, none of those things are happening to me right now. What I need right now is grace to trust God now and to take the next step in obedience to him. Each day has sufficient trouble, but each day we receive sufficient grace to endure and to glorify God and to serve him. I pray that that will be your experience today and each day as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek his rule and to do what is right before him and trust him to provide what you need in order to do it.